Welcome to the Real Digital Success Podcast. This is the podcast allergic to everything fake and addicted to everything online, authentic, and real. On this podcast, we discuss the things about online entrepreneurship that don't get talked about a lot, but are essential. I'm your host, Rocher, a.k.a. the meticulous marketer, the improbable interviewer, and the practical podcaster. Welcome to a new episode of the Real Digital Success Podcast. As I said, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is a special end of the year's episode. Uh, I was already planning to uh, just have a break until like mid-January, but I thought I would just squeeze this episode in uh, because we've got a very special guest today. And uh, I'm very excited to talk or let you hear the conversation that I had with her about conversations revolving around money and other financial issues because these can be hard conversations to have with your family your friends uh, or even your boss when you're talking about getting a raise or something in that manner and my guest uh, has written a book about it uh, that premieres probably tomorrow uh, if i'm looking at the time this is going to be uh yeah uploaded and uh, yeah, I'm just excited to uh, let you hear all about what we have discussed. So without further ado, let's get into the show. So Aaron, welcome to the Real Digital Success Podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, how's life? Well, I mean, it being 2020 and all, it's pretty good, all things considered. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, really cool that you uh, responded uh, to my uh, email because uh, for a very long time I wanted to have somebody on the podcast that was into personal vi- uh, finance uh, just to ask them a few questions uh, because most of the people I've had on the podcast till now were mostly like bloggers and uh, marketers. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> ready for something different right now. Uh, but yeah, for those that don't know who you are, uh, who is Aaron Lowry and, uh, what is broke millennial? Ooh, two very different questions, but <laughs> I will say in the context of broke millennial, Aaron Lowry is the founder, creator, author of, depending on which hat I am wearing at the time, it broke millennial started in 2013 as a blog. And truly just as kind of a fun side project, I never had any intentions of it turning into any sort of career or other sort of opportunity. And over the years it grew. And ultimately in 2016, I got my first book deal. And in 2017, my first book came out, which is Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. Then last year, 2019 was my second Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, a Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. And then December 29th of 2020, my third book comes out, which is Broke Millennial Talks Money, Script Stories and Advice to Navigate Awkward Financial Conversations. And really, the whole point of Broke Millennial is to have created a space where people can both learn and talk about money. And hopefully in a way that doesn't feel judgmental, there's no preaching or finger wagging. And it very much, the whole concept is that I slash the brand am understanding of the fact that we're all coming from 
different backgrounds, different advantages and privileges, and we all have different emotional relationships with money. And that's going to, of course, impact how we handle it in the long run. So that's truly a through line in everything that I write and talk about is whether it's figuring out how to get out of debt or learn how to build a budget or you know start investing or even just navigate money conversations with people in your life. The emotional element and the psychology of money is absolutely critical. And uh, just as you said, everybody has uh, a different relationship uh, towards money. Uh, and I was looking at your website a little bit and uh, looked a little bit about what motivated you uh, to understand how money exactly works and everything regarding money. Uh, but uh, I think my uh, listeners would love to hear that story about what made you understand uh, more about money. I assume you are referring to the Krispy Kreme donut story. Yeah. <laughs> so for those who are totally unfamiliar with me, I use this as kind of my quote unquote origin story. And it's the story that opens up my very first book. It was the very first blog post that I ever wrote. And it really tells this tale about how my parents were not very big on handing me or my little sister money. If we wanted to buy something, we really did have to figure out how to earn some money. And this also goes back to me being at the time about seven years old. And I tell this story, it was the summer of 1996 in North Carolina, where we lived at the time. And my mom was having a yard sale. And so I thought, hey, if these people are going to come buy our used stuff at like seven o'clock in the morning, I bet I can get them to buy some Krispy Kreme donuts for me and my little sister. So I asked my dad if he would go to Krispy Kreme, buy several dozen boxes of donuts, bring them back. He agreed. And obviously he fronted me the money because again, I was seven. So I end up selling out. And every time I tell this story, the amount of money I earned, I feel like very slightly, but he comes over to the table and I have this huge mound of quarters. And I was very excited because my big plan was to go to Toys R Us because that was still a thing at the time mm -hmm. and to buy two Nerf gun super soakers. Those are those big popular water guns in the nineties. And he looks at the pile of quarters and my dad looks at me like, how much do you have? And I'm like, oh, I made $20. And he goes, okay, well, It cost me $8 to buy the donuts and your sister worked with you for a little bit. So let's give her $2. So actually your net profit is $10. And then he actually did take the money. <laughs> and that was my first experience truly with money on any sort of a significant level. And I felt so betrayed, so wronged. Um, the other thing I realized in retrospect is that when my parents did candy tax at Halloween, obviously not exactly money, but a very similar principle. <laughs> so I also got used to taxation very early on in my young life. And it was all of these little moments that my parents were using to try to explain how money worked and make it very tangible for my young brain. And that put me in a position so that when I was in college and then graduated college and moved to New York City and was living on my own, I felt really in control, even though at the time I was not making very much money. My first year living in New York made about $23,000. So not a lot to live on mm -hmm. if you've ever visited New yeah, York. Yeah, especially in New York, yeah. Yep, but <laughs> I still did feel very much in control. And that was always and has always really been my goal through Broke Millennial is that you don't have to have a lot of it, but you just need to know how to control your money. 
And I think teaching people both with stories and then also with kind of these tangible lessons that I learned and hopefully that they can learn as well. That's part of the helpful way of getting there. It's a, it's a very interesting story and it, and it tells a lot about the value of your upbringing uh, because uh, a lot of people don't really have that because this is the first time I heard about candy tax uh, and yeah. I, you're probably your dad was benefiting a little bit from it too while he's teaching you. Uh, but looking back, uh, I realized that uh, that would, would have made so much of a difference if I knew that when I was younger too. Because I learned about taxes at a later age, and that's when you, so you don't really come into it uh, feeling like you're in control of everything. It just feels like everything just comes and it's like, oh, I have to pay that. Oh, I have to pay that. So I can imagine that you go in with a different type of confidence into like the working world uh, in that way, especially in New York. Well, and it was funny too, because my parents never just did these things without an explanation. Like even with the candy tax, I can remember it being explained as, well, mom made your costume, which normally she did. So, you know, mom made your costume and we went out with you to actually go with you to go trick or treating. So we get some of the candy and it was never just like candy tax, taking the Snickers or the Reese's. It was very much like, this is why we get a portion of what you earned, <laughs> which yeah, in a funny way did kind of set me up for understanding like, okay, the government gets part of what you earn because it provides these services for you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a really great way of, uh, learning everything about it, especially at that age. Uh, it's really cool that they made it something that tangible because I can imagine you, that means your parents must have had that same upbringing or they just, uh, or they just knew a lot about the value of money beforehand. It definitely was a lot of them both individually and together as a couple really placing a premium on understanding and valuing their money. My parents were both like fairly frugal people as well in a lot of ways. And so it was very much modeled to me and to my sister, this idea of spending on what you personally value. I still joke that my mom has a pair of workout shorts that are like probably still from the nineties based on the <laughs> pattern. But when we would travel, my parents would spend and we would travel nicely. We would go on these really great vacations. That was not an area where they tended to skimp. So it was in their actions modeling for us, you know, you spend on what you value and you save where you don't value things as much. And, you know, my mom didn't care to be in the latest workout outfits. And my dad wasn't buying the latest tech gadgets because that's just not really what they fundamentally valued, but the areas where they did value, they would spend their money. And I think that's also just such a great lesson to teach young children is that you need to figure out for yourself where it is that you wanna funnel your money so that your life is rich to you and not let other people impose their opinions on where you should be spending your money. That's a really nice thought and really cool philosophy to live by. So pressing forward uh, to uh, Broke Millennial and everything, uh, you, do, you basically do keynotes from what I saw. You uh, coach authors, you write books, you also run your website. And uh, it's a lot. So it, it kind of makes me wonder, what does a day in your life look like? Oh, well, like most entrepreneurs, I feel like the answer is it depends on the day. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's certainly true. 
I would say most of my days, especially because I'm really a company of one. So I do a lot of the things that probably should get outsourced. So whether it's like handling my inbox and my calendar Uh and all of that kind of stuff, um, you know, that there are some areas where I have some support, but I, for the most part, don't have a big team that I've built out. And I do try to kind of focus on particular projects at a time and put most of my energies there and then sort of take my foot off the gas in other arenas. So for example, we're recording this in December. My third book comes out December 29th. So a lot of my time and energy right now is being spent on promoting the book, you know, finalizing the launch plan with my publisher, all of that kind of work. Uh, And so I'm not taking as many, whether it's like a brand partnership opportunity or anything like that at this moment, because I'm focused on this particular project, but it really just kind of depends on the season is how I like to think about it. Speaking was normally a big part of my business, obviously with most travel being canceled this year, that's really pivoted in 2020, which caused me to have to pivot. And that's part of why I started doing things that I was totally within my control. Like I launched worksheets earlier this year. I've started doing author coaching because that's something that I can control. And it's not dependent on me getting offers from companies or schools or individual people. And then I also spend a lot of time on Instagram as broke millennial. I do on Wednesdays, I do an ask me anything where I answer people's questions. It's a lot of like spending time in DMS because people seem to prefer that to sending me an email. So (laughs) it's a lot of conversations and interactions there as well. So, um, and in any given day, I'm definitely writing at some point because writing is still a main way that I make my money. And whether it's writing for outlets like a Bloomberg or um, Time and Next Advisor or USA Today or something like that. I'm yeah. writing articles, kind of functioning more as a journalist in that capacity. Okay. So it's uh, basically just focus on the things that are most important to you and then just maintaining the rest so it doesn't really, so that it just stays stable from uh, what I understand. Yeah. And I think that that's a way a lot of people with multiple income streams in that regard, especially free, like freelancers, self-employed people, you kind of have to think about a certain level of seasonality to your work and that there are some seasons where you're focused on a particular project and that gets a lot of your focus. And so other things are going to be less loved and cared for intended to. And then you got to make sure though, to bring it back around. And listen, there are entrepreneurs who are amazing at systematizing things. Oh yeah. I am. I am not that person <laughs> and I fully admit and acknowledge that. Yeah. Same for me. Now, now I try to do it, but if I compare it to some of my friends, it is crazy how they have everything set up in systems. So it almost looks like they're not doing anything. It's, it's, it's just crazy to see. Uh, also, I was wondering because right now uh, you're doing it like this. Uh, Compared to when you first started, is there a a difference in how you approach uh, uh, all this juggling of hats and everything? That's a great question. I don't know that I've changed significantly in how I handle things. I would say the one difference is I've gotten a bit better And I'll admit that I have a bit of a scarcity mentality as an entrepreneur, which is not 
the healthiest mentality to have. It means that you tend to then say yes to projects that you don't necessarily want to do, or maybe aren't in the best alignment for what your long-term goals are at that time, because there's a nice price tag attached to it or income rather. And I do think that I have gotten better at acknowledging, Hey, this is not really in alignment with the direction that I'm looking to go. So I need to say no and pass on this. I have a lot of work to do and growth in that area, but that's certainly one that I think has gotten better in about the approximately four years I've been doing this. And I think to getting better at kind of advocating for myself, negotiating for better rates, which also has come with having more experience, having more accolades, all of that. And I have gotten better while I haven't been great at hiring long-term solutions for people to help me. I have gotten better at outsourcing on certain projects. For instance, I really wanted to revamp how I did my newsletter and create kind of a drip campaign for new people who were joining so they could like really have a sense of everything that there was there to offer. Like, I don't want to do all of this myself. So I hired somebody to do it and to set it all up, right? You know, she drafted the copy. I went in and edited it to make sure that it actually sounded like me and all the information was accurate and blah, blah, blah. But that's something that four years ago, I probably wouldn't have wanted to spend the money on and just tried to do it myself and then done probably not as good of a job at all as obviously somebody who has a lot of experience in that realm could do. Yeah, but it's understandable though because uh, you don't know the person. So you don't really know if they would actually do a good job. I personally also have like uh, a very hard time uh, with hiring people, especially for things like maybe writing or something like that. Uh, because I have this idea in my mind of how it should. And then uh, you never know who comes uh, with like uh, the right uh, type of flow when it comes to writing and same with like managing all kinds of other stuff about the website. Uh, But just like you, I'm still trying to work on that. And uh, uh, yeah, be more accepting, I would say. Yeah, so that's a great word to use. I think for me, the other thing as we all tend to think that we're really good at our, you know, one area for me, writing obviously is the area where like, this is my thing. And so I, when you get into that mindset, I think you can feel like, well, I write a very specific way. I don't think somebody could ghost write copy for me that way. Yeah, You're wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, that's one thing that I've come to realize is that Yes, I have a very specific tone and style of writing, but somebody that's very good at writing copy can also mimic that tone and style. And then I can just go back in and kind of judge here and there, tweak here and there to make it sound in total alignment with what I have to say. But there are areas of my life where I have to cede some type of control because it's just not realistic for me to write the amount of like books that I've written and articles that I write, and then to also write all the copy to... 30 plus newsletters that are going to be part of a drip campaign. Like it's just not going to happen. So something has to give. And the area for me that's going to give is stuff like the newsletters. Because if my byline is on something like an article or obviously my book, oh no, no, I'm writing that. I'm I'm not letting anyone else get their hands on that one other than obviously the editor that I work with. But areas like a newsletter, especially when the template is basically blog posts that I've already written, okay, I can cede some control there. Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, in the vein of writing, uh, I wanted to uh, 
go and ask you this question because what inspired you to start writing your book series? I got a book deal. <laughs> oh yeah, true. I, I say that kind of, kind of flippantly, kind of not. I have always loved writing. I was that person who would write short stories as a kid. Uh, English was always my favorite class in school. And then in college, I actually was a journalism and a theater double major. So oh. writing is just, a, and I, I don't like to say like a passion, but it, it's just something I feel compelled to do. If you had told my 18 year old self that I was gonna be writing about money professionally, I probably would have laughed in your face. But I do think that it presents a very interesting challenge though, to write about money and to do so in a compelling way. And my books specifically really kind of came about in a very serendipitous way. I had been featured in a segment for CBS Sunday morning and a literary agent reached out to me based on seeing me on that segment. And that's truly just how the ball got rolling. Of course, I had always wanted to write a book but really had no idea how to go about doing it. And without a literary agent, I'm not sure that I ever would have. I mean, I think eventually I probably would have bought my foot in the door, but it would have been a lot harder. So, and I also know myself that self-publishing mm. would not work for me because <laughs> I'm a bit carrot and stick. So without a publisher being like, here's an advance, you owe us a book. If you don't give us the book, you have to pay back the advance. <laughs> <laughs> that's what gets me to write a book. I'll be honest. I don't think I really would have ever gotten it together enough to self-publish a book. And for some people that works really well. I also knew I wanted to go traditional publishing because of what I felt it could do for my career in terms of giving me a level of a credential that I think that I needed to unlock the next step. Yeah. Oh, that's uh... It's quite the explanation and self-explanatory when you think about it. Uh, so uh, what I loved about your newest book is basically uh, that it's about like having these financial, these difficult financial conversations. And uh, I was uh, and I was wondering, why do you think people have such a hard time having some of these financial conversations? Judgment ultimately, I think is what it comes down to. And I say that because one, we all do talk about money a lot. We just aren't necessarily directly talking about it. And that could be as simple as make it like, okay, I have a friend who wants to have another child, but she and her husband are waiting until their first kid is in kindergarten so that they don't have to pay for daycare for two kids. That's a money conversation mm. that's being had. But we don't necessarily think about that as a money conversation. And this is what I find so interesting is we talk about money a lot without actually referencing or directly talking about money in a lot of ways. And I do feel that part of what makes it uncomfortable for people, whether it's coworkers, friends, family members, a romantic partner, which are the four sections of the book, is that I think... We are very afraid of being judged by the people that we know, especially by the people that we respect and or love, where if you're sitting next to somebody on a plane, you might open up about all sorts of stuff you would never open up to people in your life about because this is a stranger who has no bearing on your life, presumably. So it doesn't really matter what they think. And I do feel that people are more likely to unburden themselves to folks that they don't know because the risk judgment is so much different. 
where when you're talking to somebody who, if they make a snide remark, if they make a face, if they tell you something that you kind of internalize as negative, that can really rock the the basis of your relationship to that person in certain ways. So that's why we tend to play it a little bit closer when it comes to talking about our money with people that we love. Sounds really logical. It kind of reminds me of why people always go on the, these radio shows and then ask for help instead of going to maybe uh, their family and stuff about it. It kind of reminds me of, uh, uh, do you know Dave, Dave Ramsey? I am familiar with him. Yeah. So uh, I've been, for some reason, the entire week, I've been watching a lot of these episodes of him. And uh, you you always hear that people talk about those problems. And your first thought would be, why aren't they talking directly to their family? Because they kind of know the answer that they have to talk to them, uh, but they don't do it. But how you said that it's about judgment really, uh, uh, yeah, really makes you understand the psyche of why people aren't doing uh, that stuff. So I was wondering, do you think there will ever be a point uh, in our society where we're uh, have where we'll have less trouble talking uh, about these kinds of conversations? Yes and no. I don't think that we will ever be without some level of tension when it comes to money conversations, but I do think that maybe certain types of these conversations will become more socially acceptable and commonplace to have a conversation about. So something as simple as student loans. Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, I don't think anybody really would have acknowledged the existence of that kind of a debt, where today, because it's so pervasive in American society that a lot of people have student loan debt, it's a bit more commonplace to hear somebody at least say, I have student loans. Now they might not tell you how much, but more people are you know, actually acknowledging the existence of that kind of debt for themselves. Now credit cards though, on the other hand, not quite as much. People are less likely to wanna to say, oh, I have credit card debt. Now it's perfectly acceptable for people to say, oh, I have a mortgage because we've reframed that as quote unquote good debt. Yeah. But a hundred years ago, especially because that wasn't necessarily the same type of product. But a hundred years ago, the relationship to debt and that nature might've been like, oh my gosh, you, you couldn't pay for your home in cash. So I do think that we evolve in how we talk about money, how we relate to money in different ways, but that fundamentally there's always going to be certain types of tension around money conversations. Again, some of that being judgment and also some of that being that it's not equal. There's status symbols that get wrapped up in money. There's feelings yeah. of envy and jealousy that gets wrapped up in money. So to even talk with a friend about how much they make or how much they have, the risk is high for a potentially very low reward. Like, do you really want to know how much money your friend has outside of just curiosity? Because that could make you feel jealousy if the answer is a big number. And do you really want to feel that way? Yeah. And what difference does it make in your friendship dynamic? Unless that is a source of tension because maybe your friend always wants to spend a lot of money and you don't, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have a lot of money either. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it uh, also depends on uh, what kind of money conversation you are having, uh, especially in the times we are in now, because uh, with the pandemic and everything that's going on, a lot of 
yeah, a lot of companies are going out of business. And just like you said, maybe that the with the student loan, because of the transparency, uh, that it's become easier to talk about that. Uh, do you think that might be the same thing that's going to uh, occur for small businesses? I think for a lot of people, it's more socially acceptable, particularly if you're a small business owner, to say that you have some level of debt because there is an acknowledgement that debt gets leveraged to start businesses yeah. in a particular kind of way. But if you're unable to become profitable, obviously that's when it becomes a big problem. I do think, of course, the pandemic has hit many, many businesses, especially small businesses, incredibly hard and that it is important to be open and talk about these things in a very particular way. Because a lot of the ways that the pandemic has put certain businesses completely out of business is not because the owner did a poor job. It's yeah. because you, you can't sustain without being able to earn money for months at a time. So unless there's government intervention, like what are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's actually true. And it, it's, it's kind of crazy because if you like combine that with not being able to talk about it, because just like you said, with some, in some cases you can, in some cases you're not, uh, I can imagine that there might be a lot of people that have trouble with financial issues that aren't comfortable sharing that with people. So that's so that's kind of crazy too, because that's where I think maybe your book can help a lot of people too. Is uh, about having those difficult conversations. For example, uh, I don't know if they if people owe them money, but they still need money themselves uh, to support themselves and that kind of stuff. And I do think it's just important for those who are comfortable taking that risk to put themselves out there to pave the way for other people who either aren't ready yet or who need that kind of content, but maybe personally aren't comfortable discussing it publicly. Um, not dissimilar to people who publicly on social media and on blogs and whatnot share their debt payoff stories or their savings journeys or whatever it is, because that can provide inspiration. It's an interesting through the pandemic, specifically with small businesses. I live in an area of New York City called Astoria, Queens. Mm -hmm. And there's a particular business owner here who has gotten really public on Instagram talking about the financial ramifications of the pandemic on her small business. And she shares real numbers. And it's truly fascinating to watch both as somebody who runs a very different type of business, but a business myself. And then also that she's sharing this publicly for other people in the community and at large to have access to that sort of information where a lot of people might not be so honest about what the struggles are, but then also what the upsides are. Yeah, it's, in, it's, in, yeah, it's indeed the transparency that makes it easier for people to talk about it. I wish there were more people like that already that would take that step. So if you're by any chance listening, inspire us to do by doing the same I would love that but yeah I had also some questions because I saw a lot of your work and uh, it looks uh, uh, really practical and uh, I thought I would I wanted to give something practical too to uh, people that might be listening because for uh, do you have like some tips uh, how you can start conversations about for example, owing people money and yeah, just asking for that money back or something like that? Well, my first tip would be don't loan people money that you need 
or that you expect to get back. So only loan an amount of money to someone that you can mentally earmark as a gift. Because the odds of getting your money back when you loan to either a friend or a family member is often very slim. And it can do a lot of damage to a relationship. And there's a couple of reasons why. One, you want your money back because it's your money. And then two, you start to get really judgmental about how that person is spending money because they still owe you money. That's an example that, get used, that gets used in the book. One woman I interviewed said that she and a friend had a falling out because she had loaned her friend money. And then her friend started spending money on things that she thought were, you know, non-essentials. And it mm. made her really annoyed that her friend wasn't paying her back. And then her friend got annoyed with her because like, well, I still get to live my life. I don't have to be on your timeline. And it caused a lot of tension where on the flip side, if you have somebody that comes to you for an amount of money that you can part with without it causing you any sort of financial distress. And if you just mentally earmark it is, I'm going to give this to them. And if I see it back, great. And if I don't, that's okay. This has been a gift. That's the only situation under which you should actually loan somebody money. Because the other side is sure you can go down the path of creating contracts coming up with interest rates that you would charge, have an actual payment plan. But are you really going to sue the person that you like and take them to small claims yeah. court if they don't pay back? Probably not. So it's probably just going to do damage long-term to the relationship unless you reframe it as a gift. Yeah. Yeah. I can uh, imagine it. It's, it's, it's just really, it's indeed really hard with somebody you're close to, to actually have those conversations so that's, 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 those are really good tips to uh, basically live by. Uh, so I was wondering, right, because you've been, uh, you've been busy with Broke Millennials since 2013. Uh, so obviously this has been kind of a long-term thing for you. Uh, where do you see it going in 10 to 20 years? Well, ho hopefully millennials aren't broke <laughs> at that point. <laughs> But there will probably be some. And if I do my job right, though, we'll be in a better place. So who knows? Maybe it's a rebrand. Maybe it's just still a kitschy name. I, the I Gen Z's or something. <laughs> hey, those will be there too. But I think yeah. they can, they should have their own representation. They should have a Gen Zer that does my job before uh, that generation. Yeah. I think each generation deserves their own version. And you know, it's funny that you asked this. This is something that I'm kind of grappling with myself. Uh, 2013 to 2020, I am having what I would call the seven-year itch with what I do. And I have really loved playing kind of this character, if you will, of Broke Millennial. But I'm also really eager to try some other things professionally and to see whether it's just writing about non-money topics, whether it's just exploring new paths. One thing that I'm actually really interested in right now is this whole idea of financial therapy. Oh. But if I wanted to become a financial therapist, that would require I go back to school to get an actual licensed therapy degree of some sort. So there's just a lot that I'm kind of thinking about where this could reasonably lead to next. I think Broke Millennial will always exist in some capacity, but whether or not it's my main focus, I'm not sure that that'll be the case in 10 years. Mm, that's, uh, that's nice to hear, especially that you have like a 10 or 20 year plan. 
Uh, yeah, then uh, to wrap this up, uh, I wanted to uh, ask you a last question. And I always ask this uh, to people that come on the show uh, because this is the real Digital Success uh, Podcast. So we try to uh, find out uh, a lot about stuff that people don't really talk about a lot. So in your profession and everything that you've dealt with uh from 2013 till today, or basically now that I think about from you being seven years old to today, that <laughs> has something to do with like uh, uh, entrepreneurship and uh, personal finance or something in that area. What do you think is something that people don't really talk about enough? I would say real failure is probably something people don't talk about enough. Even people that talk about failures, they're usually only talking about it on the back end when they've had some sort of other success. And they're like, and then it, it set me up to achieve this great thing. Uh. And the reason I talk about that is just because I do think there's a bit of a toxic narrative that exists in entrepreneurship about like, just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep yeah. pushing. You're like almost there. You're almost going to have it. Sometimes your idea is just not that good. Sometimes it's a good idea, but it's not the right time and place. Sometimes the factors are just never going to coalesce for this particular thing to be a success, which means that sometimes you have to walk away and that there is this through line of like, don't walk away, don't walk away. That is actually a bit damaging and harmful. Uh, the other side too, is I think that sometimes people try entrepreneurship and realize that, Hey, I like having a steady paycheck with benefits on getting paid on time on a particular timetable and being able to clock out when I leave work. And that's okay. I also wouldn't say that it's a failure to try entrepreneurship and decide this is not the lifestyle that I want and go back to a more traditional job experience because it's totally okay to want that kind of structure in your life. There's yeah. a certain, I am a generally not a very risk well, let me rephrase. I'm a fairly risk averse person in general. <laughs> so entrepreneurship, there are times where it's really, really trying for me. And I do very much understand the appeal of working a traditional gig. And, you know, I have a lot of money that is way overdue to hit my bank account. And there's only so many emails that I can send to try to get people to pay me. And those kind of things happen. And it's really frustrating. And sometimes people never pay you. And it's nice to work a job where you get paid and you have benefits and you have an employer matched retirement plan and all of those kind of things. So wanting that life is also not any sort of a failure either. Yeah. I, yeah. I do think uh, that people kind of made entrepreneurship into something that it's actually not, uh, especially on social media, because there you have all these people talk about quitting the nine to five and having that financial freedom and do what you want. But they often don't realize that there's a lot that comes with it, just as you said, uh, when it comes to risk and everything being your responsibility. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I do agree with you. It's like, it's it wouldn't be a failure if you go back to that, uh, if it's just not something for you, but it's kind of presented like it is kind of failure. And I think the way that it's presented as a failure is almost like it's some sort of moral failing if you decide to opt out yeah. of this guy. And that's just where I'm like, okay, enough of that. Like, sure, if you wanna think about it as a failure of you tried and it didn't work out, so you failed. If you wanna be that black and white about it, okay. But 
if you also want to think about the fact that it takes a very particular type of skill set, gumption, and I would say luck more than anything else to be successful as an entrepreneur. And so often the luck factor gets completely discounted and people just think that it's purely based on their own talent and merit. For me, I know luck has played a huge role in what I've been able to achieve. And I'm not saying that I don't have skills, but I do acknowledge that both privilege, advantages, and luck have played a significant role in me being able to achieve what I have. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's that's def that's definitely a thing that I think a lot of people overlook, uh, especially the, especially the luck park and everything. And uh, yeah, that's it's kind of interesting. It really makes you think about like uh, a lot of people that are struggling and they're maybe not doing the thing that they would want to do. And I also think it's a, a really great skill to have to know uh, when you should quit. Yep, uh, very true. Yeah, especially, and that does, doesn't even always have to mean like uh, entrepreneurship in general, that you have to quit the whole thing. But maybe it's just like this specific entrepreneurial endeavor that you are doing. Uh, because it saves so much time and stress if you know exactly when to quit. And sometimes that can also mean quitting something that by all accounts is successful. But if it's not serving the larger purpose of what you now want, that's the other question you have to ask yourself because you're allowed to grow and change. And so even if it's something that financially is viable and successful, but is no longer in alignment with where you're trying to take either your company or your career, it might be time to shut it down and move on to something else. Yeah, definitely. But I always say it's like, uh, just try it out first and then just see where it goes. And then after that, uh, yeah, you'll just see where you end up. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to wrap up this podcast. Uh, I wanted to thank, uh, I want to thank you for having you on. Is there anywhere we can find you if we wanted to hear more from you? Yep. So I'm on Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog, on Twitter at Broke Millennial. The website is BrokeMillennial.com. And you can find any of the books wherever books are sold. And Broke Millennial Talks Money comes out on December 29th, but is available for pre-order right now. Okay. Then uh, in that case, I'll just put on the podcast page, I'll just put some links towards the books and uh, the website. So everybody that's interested can find them there. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Erin, I wanted to thank you for coming on and uh, yeah, I wish you a very nice day. Thanks. It's been a great chat. Thanks for having me. So that's the episode for today. I hope you really liked the talk I had with Erin. If you're interested in her book, uh, you can order it through thebrokemillennial.com. I will put some links on the on the podcast episode page so you can go directly there and pre-order it right now or maybe now that i think about it, by the time this airs it's probably just ready to be ordered uh, immediately uh, but yeah you can find the links and then you can order that book uh, as i said this was a mid break episode so uh, basically I'm planning to do my next episode the 21st of January so there's a little bit of a break uh, in between the uh, in between now and the next episode uh, yeah but it gives me some time to just think about some stuff innovate a little bit trying to give this podcast a little bit more flavor 
because right now it's actually pretty raw and uh, yeah just see where it goes so for e to everybody that's listening i already wish you a happy new year uh if you have some new year's goals go at it if you're uh, if you can't wait till new year just keep on going you'll and i hope you'll reach your goals so yeah that's all i wanted to say this is the podcast allergic to everything fake and addicted to everything online authentic and real this was a episode of the Real Digital Success Podcast. Peace.